Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Matt Kane, Editor-in-Chief of Attitude. And thanks for joining me on this latest episode of Attitude Heroes. My guest today is everybody's favourite fashion consultant, author and TV presenter, Gok Wan. So get ready to drop your shoulders, pull your tummy in and stick out those bangers. But first, a quick reminder that Attitude Heroes is sponsored by the Great Britain Campaign, which welcomes the world to visit, do business, invest and study in the UK. You can check out their website at great.gov.uk. And our co-sponsors are Jaguar. If you'd like more information on their products, then you can visit the website jaguar.co.uk or look out for them in the latest issue of Attitude magazine. When Gok Wan first became a TV star, helping women find their inner confidence in Channel 4's How to Look Good Naked, it's fair to say that viewers loved him. It's also fair to say that some parts of the media weren't quite sure what to make of him. Here was a clearly gay man of mixed race, being frank and funny while prodding away at the nation's fleshy bits. He didn't conform to any recognisable stereotypes, nor did he seem to care what anyone else thought of him. Since then, he's been a firm fixture on our TV screens, dishing out advice on fashion, fitness, interior design, being a teenager, and even Chinese cooking. When I went to his sumptuous home in central London, we talked about all manner of things, including his early life, his career, and of course, his sexuality. Throughout our conversation, Gok swears a lot, as do I, such as in this clip when he tells me about the rather confused abuse he received when he was growing up. Now, for the bullies, it was really difficult with me because I am mixed race, and at the time I was obese, and I was effeminate. So for the bullies, who were stupid, they were really confused. <laughs> what did what, they what, what, the mouse, They, they didn't know half the time, so, you know, it would be... Queer bent fucker. He's very candid when describing the effects of coming out on his libido. All of a sudden, as soon as I'd said it, and it was out in the world, I am gay, I fancied everyone. <laughs> there wasn't a single man out there that I wouldn't have dry-humped for less than a burger. And he had me gripped when he recalled taking a boyfriend home for the very first time. The entire room stopped. It was horrific. It was awful. My dad kind of just looked up from his rice bowl and then looked back down again. Mum then pulled chairs for us. We sat down and we ate in silence. In my house, we never eat in silence. It's a mental Chinese tradition that you're screaming and shouting and laughing and telling stories. It's deathly quiet around this table. Don't worry, that story does have a happy ending. Now, pausing only to check ourselves in the mirror one last time, let's meet Gok. Oh, and by the way, if you can hear a little chuckle in his voice when we start, it's because he was doing everything he could to make me blush just as we started recording. He is a wicked man. Gok, thank you for having us in your gorgeous home. You're welcome, anytime you like. I can't believe you've not been here before. 
I haven't. It's fantastic to be here now. I can't believe how glamorous it is. Do you think? Yes. Think it's really weird, isn't it? Because you live somewhere and because it's surrounded by my stuff that I don't feel that it's glamorous at all. If anything, I feel that I think it's quite rustic. And I think it's, you know, I think things are placed where they where I want them. But I think it feels quite rustic in here. But a lot of people that have been in have said, oh, you know, it's really sad, it's really stylized and stuff. I just don't ever see it like that. Well, it's interesting because it is interesting that I think if you look at the way a person dresses, how you've, you know, become known in the public eye as an expression of themselves, mm. it's quite interesting when you see somebody's place. Which is completely polar opposite. Well, <laughs> yeah, but at the same time, it does seem like an expression of you, but I feel like I'm experiencing a different side of you just by seeing your home environment. Yeah. It's weird. Do you know what? I, had, I, I did have an apartment years ago, my first ever apartment that I bought, um, that basically looked like my wardrobe. It looked like what I wore. <laughs> it was kind of slightly graphic and stark with cre- clean lines, and it, was, you know, uh, it had a moment of Asian appeal about it. And I didn't like existing in it at all. I didn't feel comfortable there. It felt really alien to me. And I left there, and I went straight to a country house in Hampstead and painted everything green and gold, and then wanted to bring the outside in. And I felt really warm. So I think this, this place is a, a combination of the two, where it's got modern touches and clean lines, but actually there's a real warmth of history and heritage about it. Well, it's also quite masculine, isn't it? And I'm quite masculine, believe it or not. No, I know you are. No, I wasn't saying that as a controversial... <laughs> and you know, I, and I wouldn't are. be offended if you thought I wasn't. <laughs> but, but absolutely. Well, actually, in fairness, though, you have... I mean, you've said to me before that um, you do kind of play up your gayness and you put yeah. it out there totally. Yeah. And um, I think if somebody walked in here, they would probably think it was... Well, actually, it's too tasteful to be a straight man's home, but um, <laughs> it's, not, it's not as flamboyant as you might think. No, no, it's true. And it, it is true, you know, my, 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 my campness that I really enjoy, and I'm, I'm really, you know, I'm, I'm really proud of my campness. I think I've really honed it, and I think it's, um, I think it's quite a strong campness. Um, isn't a natural thing. I've never really naturally been that camp. And it's really weird because I differentiate campness with femininity. And I have a massive amount of femininity about my body, um, about how I perform, how I act, how I move, how I sound. Um, Everything about me is quite feminine. But actually campness being a cabaret performance art... It's something that I've had to really work out over the years. That's fascinating because I've always... People have called me camp and I've always said, I'm not camp, actually. I'm effeminate. Yeah, and I think that it's, you know, when I, when I look back at great camp performers and people that have, you know, you know w- whether that's male or female, actually, I, I don't think it's gender-specific uh, at all. I think that, you know, to get that skill right and to get it and push the button with it... It's, it's such an incredible discipline and it's taken me a long time to really work out my campness, how much you can inject, what's, what's the volume on it, you know, how much you're giving out, how much you're holding back. It's a, there's a real skill to it, I think. Well, and it's, and, it's, and it's such a strategy with you. It's so kind of thought out and controlled. It's not a natural thing. No. You know, somebody like Alan Carr, when he's attacked for being camp, he always says, this is just the way I am. Yeah. Yeah. And actually what you're saying is, I studied it, yeah. I pitched it just right, and, you know, that didn't come as an innate yeah. thing to you. But that was because I used camp, um, and I know where my camp came from, and it came from a pantomime um, when I was about 13 years old. And I w- prior to that, I was bullied quite heavily for being effeminate, not camp. I didn't even know what camp was. And I got cast as Dandini, so um, Prince Charming's sidekick camp character. And I remember the first time walking into the drama studio and Mr Skidmore, who I had a massive crush on, he, <laughs> he basically just said, just 
do it. Just be as flamboyant. I don't even know the words that he used. I don't even think it was flamboyant. He would have been, you know, exaggerate, you know, and all that stuff. And all of a sudden, Dandini was this incredible person that I'd never really experienced before, where you were allowed to be as flamboyant as you like. So I remember the first time that I really behaved very camp. And I remember the reaction I got on stage was just so phenomenal. It was so incredible. I decided that I would keep Dandini and he would be a part of my life. And every time I needed him, I would call on him to either get me something, get me somewhere, or to fight people away. So when you go on TV and you are accessing that inner Dandini, it's not actually gawk. The gawk that everybody thinks they know, it's you flicking a switch and you're accessing a part of yourself. I think it depends on what I'm doing, really. So if I'm in an interview situation, Dandini isn't really that required. But if I am dressing somebody and if I, if the woman that I'm dressing is nervous or she's upset, which they often are, because I've kind of dug out for their story, Dandini will come out because he will be a safe place. He'll be a friend. He'll be somebody that will hold her hand. And he will then welcome her into the space. Then Gok has to take over for all the editorial, for the content, for the information. And then Dandini will often sign it off. And it will be flippant and it will be loud and, and you know, and fun with a, probably a punchline at somewhere. And so there's a real combination between the two. This is fascinating because <laughs> I've got to tell you that the issue of attitude that this is going in is going to be a themed issue around masculinity. Right. And actually everything that you've said in the opening kind of plays into so many of the things that I wanted to talk about. Right, great. And first of all, actually, the thing about... You know, you're so confident, you're so at ease with your effeminacy, campness, whatever. Um, I wanted to go back to, you know, you said you were bullied at first mm. for being effeminate. Um, presumably you weren't always that comfortable with it. Presumably there was a time when you couldn't have sat here now and just happily, chirpily talked about how I accessed my inner Dandini and became yeah. more camp. You know, how did you feel about your... If you're saying that you think you were more effeminate by nature rather than camp. How did you feel about that when you first became aware of Do you know what? I wasn't really aware of my femininity because I've always been very feminine. And so from a very early age, I always felt more comfortable around female company. I was always drawn to, you know, female situations or stories or issues or whatever. From a really young age, four and five, I'd want to be around my sister and my aunties. I didn't want to be around boys. It didn't, you know, just I had nothing in common with that. Um, but that, because, because it was so natural it didn't feel unusual or alien. So the, as far as I was concerned, there was nothing wrong with me. This is just who I am. And it's weird, isn't it? Because when you get bullied, bullies often pick out, you know, they find your weak spot and they find the area that they know that's really going to affect you or they're going to get the rise from. And they will massage that as much as they possibly yeah. can. Now, for the bullies, it was really difficult with me because I am mixed race. And at the time, I was obese and I was effeminate. So for the bullies, who were stupid... <laughs> they were really confused. What did what, they what, go what, for the Mars then? They what didn't was... know half the time. So, you know, it would be queer bent fucker. You know, they don't they didn't know. It was a, it was it was almost like a reaction. So I was able then to hide my sexuality back and I put my weight and my ethnicity in front because they were the easy things to be bullied for because I was, st I was still coming to terms with my sexuality. I was still trying to understand what gay men... I knew from a very young age, very young age, that I was gay. I knew that I was attracted to men, but I held that back. Can I ask one question? On. Just yeah. shoving a question there. You know, you were saying um, about always identifying with the women and wanting to be around women. Yeah. One thing I find fascinating is a lot of trans women that I know... Yeah. Um, they thought previously that they were gay men. 
And um, some of the, you know, so I talked to Juno Dawson, who's a friend yeah. of mine, and she said... Um, she's incredible. She's fantastic, isn't yeah. she? But she realised, she thought she was gay, but all the markers that she went through, it's the kind of things that we're talking about now. You know, so it's quite fascinating to me that one person who's effeminate knows very strongly that they're gay and not trans, and yeah. the other one gets it all mixed up and then yeah. realises that actually she should have been a born a yeah. woman in the first place. It's really weird because when I was younger and very pre-teens probably, I remember questioning what would it feel like to be a woman because I was just around women and I wanted to be, in particular my sister, who was a huge heroine of mine and still is and always been, it's been a, a, a massive force in my life. Um, but I always wondered what would, what would it feel like to be her? And, and it was never about the dressing and it was never about uh, the makeup or the blow dry of the hair. It was more to do with, I wonder what it feels like for people to react to you as being a woman. It was always about the reaction of other people, but that didn't last very long. And I've always enjoyed being a man. I like being a man. Yeah, so do I. I, I never wanted yeah, to be a girl. I never wanted to be a girl, but I prefer girls' company, and I feel far more comfortable in girls' company, and I always have done. But interestingly, so you say you put the Chinese thing up front, and yeah, you put so the fat up front, you kept the sexuality at the back. Because I was still dealing with that. So I hadn't spoken to my family about it, I hadn't really spoken to myself about it. I knew that it was there. I'd had crushes up until this point. And so when people pointed out, uh, you, you know, queer, bent, puffer, faggot, whatever I was being thrown at me, I then used my weight or my ethnicity and I pushed that forward. And it was a it was a device or a tool, or however you want to look at it, to make sure that the bullies could then play around with that space and they would never get to the stuff that I really couldn't talk about. So when did you start dealing with that stuff then? So that stuff really probably wasn't until Dandini. And so I, I found this camp character. Then all of a sudden, when the bullies came towards me and they wanted to discuss or disarm my sexuality, I could then put Dandini in front, who was a make-believe character. All of a sudden, he had jazz hands and he wore palazzo pants and he wore really strong makeup, a little bit like the MC from Cabaret. He was that character. And you couldn't get close to his sexuality because he was asexual, because he was a character. So you strip... Right, so that's interesting, because I was going to say to you, if you weren't comfortable with your sexuality, how on earth were you comfortable enough to create that persona and that Dandini? Because for me, camp wasn't gay. Camp. So you were stripping all the sex out of it? Yeah, there was, there was no sex involved. I wasn't sexually active. There was no sex involved there. And so for me, it was I was coming to terms with who I was as a person. But that also plays into, if you think about the tradition of your kind of John Inman characters yeah. on um, TV, I know that they were never identified as gay, but the campness, they were always stripped of all kind of sexuality, weren't they? It was yeah. always a de-sexed persona. Absolutely, because also as well, it's, you know, it's... For me, it is cabaret, and I'm not saying, and I'm, you know, there are familiarities, there is an easiness that comes with being camp. And so I think that if you are going to be flamboyant and camp, and I do think it is, a lot of it is preconceived, it is put on. And I think that if you are going to, like when I do it, for instance, it is centred around my sexuality. But back then, I didn't understand my sexuality. I just knew that there was camp. So, right, so you had put the Chinese and the fat up front, yep. and kept the sexuality back. at the back. Whether or not you associated Dandini with sexuality, a lot of people 
it would have marked you out as gay doing yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. So once you'd brought that to the front, how did you start to respond? How did your relationship with your campness and your gayness start well, I to never change? Ha- well, I never had to discuss my being gay because the camp was the buffer. It was the moat around the castle. And so that stopped people from coming there. So that allowed me then to explore my sexuality, whether that's through fantasy or whether that's through my crushes or whatever, or my first experiences. They were my experiences. Experiences. And whenever I didn't feel comfortable with that, then I could then use Dandini and camp as the space around it. I've got to ask you this. Have you Go had on. therapy? No. You are talking about all this as if you have completely <laughs> worked it out already. Whereas so many people that we interview, um, I like to think that I'm asking really intelligent <laughs> questions, but they're kind of, a lot of the time, they're, they're kind of working it out. You've got it all. What You are the most self-aware person oh my God, I've probably really ever not. interviewed in 20 years. <laughs> well, you're certainly aware of this kind of masculinity, effeminacy, kind of the camp persona. Do you, do you know what? It, it, I, do, I think where it comes from is I've always... I've always liked gay. I know that sounds bonkers, but I've, I've never been afraid of gay. And so I've, I've, it's given, I've given it a lot of thought. So when people said to you, queer, puff, faggot, whatever, you never internalised that as hating yourself for what they were saying. You never stopped liking who you were and your gayness. I've never hated my gayness. That's quite amazing. Yeah, I've never hated it. I've never been afraid of it. Um, You know, I I came out much later as well, bizarrely. So so I'm saying all this now. Like, I'm the most sorted 13-year-old, but I actually didn't come out until much later. And it wasn't until I decided that I I was okay with how I looked. So because, weirdly, inside my head, I had the three degrees. I had the ethnicity, the fat, the gay. So they were the reasons why people came to me. They were the reasons why people noticed me. They were the reasons why people discussed me. So these are my three degrees. So once I'd got my head around fat and what fat meant, and once I'd got my head around what being mixed race and Asian mixed race meant then I could deal with my sexuality. Yeah, so actually, you said you never hated being gay, but you did say earlier that that was the one that you kept at the back. Because yeah, because I didn't understand it. Around. Because I could discuss fat with my family, who were all fat. I could discuss race with my family, because they were all mixed race, or my dad Chinese. But with the gayness, you With the gayness, around. I didn't know anyone that was gay. And I, I couldn't get my... I had no research. I didn't have Google. I didn't have a smartphone, because it was back in the 1900s. And so the, I had no research at all. And it wasn't until I opened up my free, first free gay magazine that I stole from a gay pub in Leicester that I saw all of these adverts and I saw columns and boys in pants dancing in nightclubs, that I suddenly thought, oh, OK, this is quite normal then. Right, so tell us, right, so how did you go off? We've skipped out a bit. We've, we've got the Camp Dandini yeah. in the school play, yeah. and you're suddenly in the gay bar reading boys. OK, so I'm not suddenly in the gay bar. So then, so, I, so I'd gone through quite a lot of trouble. So I, I left school at, at 15, because I was a massive tearaway, and I was causing trouble and very destructive and everything else. So the school basically asked me to leave. But that was acting out your issues, presumably. Acting out. Well, it was my issues it was because I, I I hate authority I'm terrible being told what to do I'm quite stupid and I, I I didn't get on academically so everyone around me was really bright and clever and I I looked different and I sounded different and and my by which time my femininity had really taken control of my physicality and so I was all of these things and so actually I just didn't fit in and I didn't fit into the school system I didn't fit in with my friends and so I left school and so all of this stuff happened but then it wasn't until then that I 
then decided I was going to go back to college. And I was about 17 years old, and that's when I truly had my first ever crush. And that's when I really came to terms. And I had two crushes going on. I had Mark Owen from Take That was my oh, first God, ever. You've got such a different type of man to me. Mine was <laughs> Howard and Robbie from Take That. Oh, no, that. it was definitely, it was Mark Cute. And he used to wear that awful, stinkiner, terrible tooth necklace. Do you remember that tooth? You've gone old-fashioned yeah. on me now, darling. I don't, know what you, I don't know what you're on about. I can't picture but, that. But I, was, I, was, I had this massive, massive crush on him. And I basically fell in love with a guy at college. And so that's when I started to come out. So that's when I came out to my friends but while I was at college. But I didn't come out to my family until much later. Right. Can we come back to coming out to your family? <laughs> You've slightly skipped over. So, okay. so, right, so when you were Dandini, you were denying the sexual part of your sexual Yeah, but the campness was there. Yeah. The campness was there. But then you see Mark Owen in the prayer video, perhaps. Yeah, you absolutely. Start to oh, feel, my God, absolutely, all the time. Right <laughs> now. I'm thinking about it right now. He's on his knees, he's in the sand, he's praying. <laughs> Under that fountain, my God. <laughs> anyway, so you start to feel turned on. You meet this guy at college. Yeah. So how did the sex side and the sexual desire side of the sexuality start to come out and how did you deal with it? The physical side? Yeah. Well, the physical side was just, it was... I think when you, I, I became very sexually aware physically and I all of a sudden, and it wasn't until I really, the, the point that I came out to my friends at college, we had this conversation and I turned around and said, oh, and take that was like the big thing. And it was, oh, he's quite hot. And it came out of my mouth. And I, I remember thinking I should run away from these people and this situation. So you hadn't worked out that you were going to do it. It just came no, it out. it just came out. It just came out. And, I, and, and up until then, whenever boys were discussed or kind of sex or whatever, I would always just go completely mute. And I wouldn't run away from it, but I just wouldn't get myself involved so with it. what was going on in your head? Why did it just come out at that moment? I think I was ready. I think I, 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 think I was ready. I was trusting myself. And I knew that it would come out when it needed to. And I was all of a sudden around a group of pet friends that I had on this, on this drama course and where there were gay people and there were people that talked about sexuality, that talked about sex and they were being physical. So you and weren't on your own anymore. So I was, absolutely. So I was all, all of a sudden, I was around people that I knew that wouldn't judge me for my sexuality and was, so they would accept me for who I am. Was part of the attraction of going to drama school that you had worked out somehow in your head that you would be around other girls? No, I genuinely wanted to be an actor. So my sexuality was nothing to do with it. I wanted to be an actor. And actually, being surrounded by creatives and people that were far more accepting um, was, was a great byproduct. And don't forget, I came from a really tough council estate. And so and this council estate, you know, you, didn't, you weren't different. You weren't allowed to be different. So all of a sudden, I'm in this space in the same city where people were allowing me to be who I am. And so all of that happened. And I had this moment, this almost epiphany, where I and I and when I in hindsight I now know that I was just trusting myself and that you know I wasn't it was never going to be a prepared thing it was just going to come out and so that came out and then all of a sudden as soon as I'd said it and it was out in the world I am gay I fancied everyone <laughs> there wasn't a single man out there that I wouldn't have dry humped for less than a burger. I mean, literally every single person. And I remember in a taxi, I would flirt with the taxi driver. I would walk down the street and I, you know, do you remember that Mr. Soft advert? You know, that guy walking down the street? Oh, yeah, hey, yeah, Mr. Yeah, Soft, yeah, that yeah. one. I was like that character. I, I, my mints came out. I was there. It was strong. It was super powerful. And it was incredible. And it was almost as if, you know, 
in a movie, I mean, it might be uh, Narnia, and you suddenly discover this world and this land which is magical and it smells different and it tastes different and it appears different. It was incredible. So many girls go completely mad when they discover that. And, you know, I was talking to um, Russell T Davis about it for an earlier episode of this podcast and he was saying, when, it, when your sexual desire, your sexuality has been suppressed, when the lid comes off, sometimes people can go a bit bonkers, you go a bit cock crazy. Yeah. But, you know, but mine wasn't physical. So this is, this is the other weird thing, is that all of a sudden, I just didn't want to have, like, 50 cocks in my hands. I basically wanted love and a relationship and marriage and settle down, and it was love. It was, it was all I wanted. I wanted to love a man and be with a man, and I craved man because I had been with woman for so many years, all of a sudden I wanted man. Just a minute, right. <laughs> You'd been with woman for so many years. Are you talking about when you were around your mum, your sisters? Yeah, around you females. Oh, I thought you were talking, I thought you no, were saying you shagged women. No, so I'd been around women, so, so much female company, and all of a sudden I was... Craving Yeah, it was, like, it was like a vegetarian tasting meat for the first time. It was like I, need, I was carnivorous for cock. Right, so it's getting all very carry on with being carnivorous for cock, which is great. I love the way this conversation is developing. But you have said that you were still de-sexing your sexuality. I, up until then. Right, so I when de-sexed did, it until so then. So when did, when did you first snog a bloke? So my first snog with a bloke was when I was at college, which back then I would fall in love within... Before 45 seconds was over, I was in love with that person. I was committed. We were going to get married. I'd already started designing the house. It was there. And it was with a guy that I'd met and I completely found that we had this snog that was awkward and horrible and sloppy and wet, but it was magical and it was absolutely amazing. But, but I wasn't interested in that really, but it was, I was so in love with this guy on, on my course, uh, sorry, the course above me at college, so in love, I was absolutely dead cert that he was the one and I was going to love him forever, even though he had dirty fingernails. And it was a massive forgiveness because I hate <laughs> dirty fingernails. I hate dirty fingernails. I was going to say, so I he had... quite hot. <laughs> <laughs> no, disgusting, awful. And, but I still fancied him and I still loved him. And he was amazing. He had long blonde hair. He listened to Donovan. I listened to Tracy Chapman. He had dirty fingernails. I dressed like a hippie. It was incredible. And I then was living in my bedsit. I'd moved out of home, lived in my bedsit uh, in Leicester. And I... Uh, oh, you were still, you were still in Leicester? I I'm assumed in Leicester. you were in London. No, right? I'm in Leicester. I'm a child. And I said to him, um, do you want to come over and listen to some music? Really cool, just like that. And he said, yeah, sure. And then that was it. And I was like, that we're, we're going to get married. I mean, I, I haven't got enough time to organise the wedding. So we are going to get married. Let me, let me tell you, Matt, it's a story. <laughs> it's my story. And so I invited him over and he was going to come over. And I went back to my house and my, my bedsit and I lit so many candles. It was like an Enya video in this bloody bedsit. And it was at the top floor of this house. And it had this tiny little window, tiny, 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 like the size of a CD. That's all the window that I had in this attic bedsit. And I was there waiting for him. And I played Tracy Chapman, then I played Donovan, and, and put on more necklaces and more bangles and more stuff. You know, it was, it was just this, the nerves were there. And I heaved myself every five minutes to try and look out of this window for him to arrive. And he never arrived. Oh. He never arrived. But it was a really big moment in my life because I knew then it confirmed everything for me. I knew that absolutely he might not be the one, but I know that this is who I am now. And so it was almost like a second coming out for me. 
it was confirmed. Absolutely. I'm going to be with a man. I'm going to marry a man. I'm going to love a man. And that's it. I'm gay. But that was all a solo experience, wasn't it? That realisation. You were <laughs> like everything in my own. life. Absolutely. Very solo. So you've had this solo experience in the flat. Yeah. So what happened then? From, you know, at what point did you start to tell? You've told your friends. At what point did you start to tell your mum and dad? Well, then, so I was petrified of telling my family because I had no idea at all how my dad was going to take it. My dad is from a village in Hong Kong. He's, you know, he's not around gay. So it's not part of his life or anything. I knew my mum would be fine with it. Um, and so, I to- so I'm still in Leicester. My sister's at university in Hendon. Um, and I go and visit her and I basically come out to my sister. So my sister knows about this. And I said, don't tell mum and dad. And she's like, fine. And she said, I always knew. And then she told my brother. So my brother and sister hold this secret. Anyway, years, years later, I'm now living in this flat in Kentish Town. I've been out on a Saturday night, massively fucking hungover over really ill the next day brother and sister had come and i was as quiet and and insular and and sweating sweating and my and my sister said you're just in a bad mood today because you've not come out to mum and dad and i said yes that's absolutely right you are didn't want to tell them i got this hangover and so i said that my sister went home and she went home to leicester drove back my mum called up and said the kids are home and i said yeah great and she said i know and i said what do you know she said oilens told me and so my sister had told my mum that I'm gay. And my, in my recollection, it's very hazy, my recollection is I don't remember asking my sister to tell my mum. My sister remembers she me saying... She outed you. My sister, my sister, and I do believe my sister, saying that apparently I'd said to her, you have, you, you have to tell mum for me. Anyway, so this happened and I then was petrified because I... I you know, 0.001% chance of losing my father or, or his, his blessing for me was just risk. It was too much risk. And so I was absolutely petrified. And so I um, left it several months and I was, I was dating a guy at the time. And I, I was really bad because we'd only been seeing each other for about three months. And I said to him, right, we're going back to see my parents. And he had no idea at all. I, I hadn't seen my parents since I'd come out. And so we bund- I bundled him into the back of my Beetle. We drove out to Leicester and I timed it for half past 11 because I knew my, at night my parents would be having their dinner because they would have finished the restaurant because they worked in a restaurant. Ah. And so then we walked into the apartment and I just introduced this guy to all of my family. As and your boyfriend, what no, did you just say? No, just said, hi, everyone, this is whoever. And so the entire room stopped... It was horrific. It was awful. My dad kind of just looked up from his rice bowl and then looked back down again. Mum then pulled chairs for us. We sat down and we ate in silence. In my house, we never eat in silence. It's a mental Chinese tradition that you're screaming and shouting and laughing and telling stories. It's deathly quiet around this table. And the guy that I was with had no idea at all what was going on. He just thought it was completely normal. I knew, obviously, it was the most horrific situation ever. And so then my dad got up halfway through his meal and walked into the lounge. And I looked at my mum. My mum just kind of shrugged her shoulders. I looked at my sister and she just shook her head because my dad would never leave a table. It's Chinese tradition that father stays at the table until the end of the meal whilst we all clear up around him. It's just a big tradition. But he'd left this meal for the first time in my life, halfway through his meal. And I was kind of sitting there sweating, almost in tears. The poor guy had no idea. He was still trying to use chopsticks. Um, It was horrific. And I then walked through the flat, which was above the restaurant, and walked into the lounge. And my, my father had taken all the cushions off the sofas and he'd made a bed for the two of us. 
Aww. in the lounge and lit a fire. So that was his way of saying it's okay. So he built Aww. us a space. That's lovely. Isn't that amazing? So did you then allow yourself... I mean, by this stage, you've got a boyfriend. I'm assuming you've yeah. been going to gay bars and this, that, and the other. Yeah. But did you then... Were you more at peace with it? Did you allow yourself to... I was out. To... It, that, that, was, that, was, that is my coming out story. So everything that happened up until then, so the apartment, Donovan, Tracy Chapman, the gay bar, the magazine, the club nights, all that stuff, that stuff really wasn't part of my gay coming out because the most important thing for me was coming out to my family and having them accept my sexuality. So it, was, it wasn't until the bed was made on the floor with the open fire in the flat above the restaurant on the night with the guy, that's when I came out. That's when, that's when I truly became gay. And it's amazing, isn't it, that your dad's from a completely different culture where they didn't have any kind of yeah. history of acceptance of gay people, yeah. or certainly not in recent history. And um, he was completely fine with it. Comple yeah, completely fine with it. And, you know, and that, and no, I'm, I'm lucky, you know, since then, you know, for years now I've worked with gay charities and stuff and I've spoken to kids that have had a really tough time coming out and stuff. So, so, so it was an incredible, incredible experience. And um, what happened to the mum? Oh, I dumped him soon after that. <laughs> drove me nuts. It served his purpose. <laughs> he drove me absolutely nuts. He was very sweet, but he would just, you know, it was really... I mean, I did use him. He was a tool. You are a hard bitch, aren't you? Do you, you think? Used, well, you've just said you used him as a tool to come out to your mum and dad. Yeah. And maybe I'll find him one day and apologise. So you're not still in touch with him? No, no, not at all. I haven't seen him I haven't seen, since we broke up. I mean, that was a long, long time ago. Um, but, yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting how close you are to your family, actually, because um, what a lot of people used to say was that, you know, being gay, you had to distance yourself from your family. They didn't understand you. It was kind of a standard thing of the gay experience. And you found your substitute family from your friends mm. when you moved away to a big city and you started going to bars. Actually, that happens less and less now that we are more accepted in society in this country, and that's brilliant. Mm. But it was never the case for you then. It was a, no. it was a big thing that you had to be accepted by your family and... Yeah. It was, you know, my, my family mean everything to me and we're very, very... I mean, they drive me nuts, but very, very close. But it's, I'm not saying that I would, wouldn't have come out if they hadn't accepted me because I had to come out because I am gay and they, they had to know and I didn't want to lie to them any longer. But we're also talking, it's back in the day where, you know, it actually wasn't that long ago, if you think about it, 23 years ago, but gay was still very much a housed sexuality it was behind blacked out doors and windows oh, in clubs oh, and bars you know we didn't have grinder and the internet and we didn't have gay people that were in the media or out didn't have you know really gay magazines where people discuss stuff you know none of that stuff was around back then so actually coming out for me was quite a it, like, like you said it was a solo journey because i had nowhere to go to get references and whereas now because of the internet and you can research people's stories and blogs and vlogs and podcasts and stuff like that, you can get your, you can get your research before you do it now. I didn't have any of that stuff, really. And I only had my friends' experiences that they told me about, which some were brilliant and some were horrendous. But interestingly, you say horrendous because actually you have talked in the past about your experience with eating disorders and, you know, depression around the time. So how much of this was bound up with the fear and the anxiety around exploring and expressing your sexuality? Do you know what? Weirdly, I don't think that my... Any, any of the mental health issues that I've had over the years, whether that's been eating disorders or whatever, I don't, I don't think it's had anything to do with 
my sexuality. And so as soon as my family knew, I was very comfortable to live a very gay lifestyle, have boyfriends, gay friends, you know, talk about those issues, you know, all of that stuff. And I've, I've always been very active on the gay scene. I've always liked gay people and done as much as I can for the gay community, not only since being on television, but also prior to that, I've always been very active with it. And so it was never... So, so, so my anything that was going on, the dark stuff inside my brain that stopped me from eating, that, that all of that stuff, it was never really to... It was actually nothing to do with being gay. It's all, if anything, gay has been something that's made me feel very warm and very safe and a place that I could go to where I understood it and I knew it. But there is a connection, though, isn't there? Because when you're um, exploring your sexuality and, you know, you mentioned the physical side earlier... It's obviously linked to your body image and the way you see your body. And if there was darkness in that area for you, you know, taking your clothes off for a man can be a traumatic thing, can't it, if you hate your body? So there is a, it is all bound up. Do you not so, think? So, no, I don't. I, genuinely, I don't. Because I, being obese from a child and being bullied and told that you were no good because you were fat or you were greedy or um, worthless or whatever, just purely because of what you look like, had nothing to do with my sexuality. Going to drama school and being feeling like you're not good enough and everyone around you being far more attractive and far brighter and cleverer than you had nothing to do with my sexuality. In fact, my sexuality was the one thing I was super proud of then because then I used it as a tool to turn around and say, well, actually, I, I know this about me and I, I understand this. And so and when I lost all the weight and became anorexic, it was never because I was gay. It was always because I felt that I had to... I felt like I didn't deserve the body I was in. I felt like I had to be slimmer. If I was slimmer, I'd be more accepted or I'd be brighter or, or, or all of that stuff. So, I mean, the gay community is often criticised for being, you know, body image obsessed and, um, you know, body fascist, this, that and the other. So when you... So around this time, you're starting to explore the gay scene and get out there, so there's no connection at all with you becoming aware no, of your body none. and wanting to shift the weight? Absolutely not. When I... And I've spoken very candidly about having anorexia, and when I... I remember the first day that I decided that I was going to be anorexic, and it was a very conscious decision, I was going to lose weight. And it wasn't just going to be a diet. I was going to dramatically change how I look. So, yeah, so I, I remember the day. I, remember, I hit my chest, and at the time, I had big... Boobs. I had big man boobs. Bangers. And I, bangers. I had bangers. And I hit my chest and I said, I'm going to change. And it was a conscious decision because I felt I was failing at college. I wasn't bright enough. I wasn't as good as everybody else. Everyone around me was blonde hair and blue eyes and beautiful and middle class and educated and just exactly what you'd expect an actor at the Central School of Speech and Drama to be. And I was none of that stuff. I was this six foot one Asian Hagrid with boobs and, you know, this big personality, but I just didn't look the part. And so I remember doing that. And, and so I, when I started losing the weight and dramatically lost the weight and became very, very ill very quickly, the, one of the only safe places to me, for me to go to inside myself internally was my sexuality. That's lovely. It's really nice to hear. So when, so when you started having boyfriends and having sex then, you know, you said that for a while you denied the sex, the physical side yeah. of your sexuality. When you start to explore that, it's a joyous, yeah. warm discoverer. It, it's, it's amazing because also as well, because I'd lived in both bodies, a very a 21-stone obese body and an emaciated nine-stone body, I 
actually the physical side of it, I wasn't that bothered about. And it's nice and it's amazing. And, you know, who doesn't want that rush of, you know, euphoria when you're with somebody, you know, it's amazing. But actually it was that connection, that mental connection for me has always meant so much more. And that's because I still partly live in an obese body and partly live in a slimmer body. My God, you're going to be one of those, like, really intense shacks. But <laughs> <laughs> there's all this intellectual stuff going on. <laughs> But, you know, it kind of, but for me, it kind of makes sense. You know, I went through very adult situations at a very young age. So Yeah, it's like a yeah. trauma. Your childhood sounds like, a lot of it sounds like a trauma. It, 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 was, it, was, it was really traumatic. Um, you know, and that, that's pre- predominantly from just being fat, really, more than anything else. And so, actually, when you, when, you, when you get to the stage where you feel at one with yourself physically, the mental side of sex becomes really passionate and really hedonistic and very, very strong because actually you suddenly realise that it's an external thing is that when you're sharing your body with somebody, it's only a carcass, it's only the outside. It's all the other stuff, which is so much more orgasmic and incredible and intense and amazing. So when was the first time, this amazing sexual thing that you're talking about, when was the first time that you experienced that with a man? Probably around the age of about... The first time it was amazing was probably about 18. Oh, that's quite young. Yeah, it's quite young. I was still having shit sex when I was 18. But I refused to have shit sex. sex. (laughs) Never had shit sex. I refused to have shit sex, bad sex, because... But why would would anybody do that? Yeah, well, here's the thing. A lot of the guys that I've interviewed for this have talked about having shit sexual experiences at the beginning because they were so unaccepting of their sexual desires that it just all would get fucked up. And, you know, there's a darkness there and it's not the joyous, innocent exploration that it is for most straight people. Do you know what I mean? But what you're saying is you had great sex from the beginning. You seem to be having a lot of trauma in other areas of your life. But that's partly because I was willing to think about it. And so I, 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 I clearly remember having four or five hour intense conversations before sex. So it's almost... Oh, my God, you really are one of those <laughs> intense shacks. <laughs> but I, I, do, I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. I, I have no idea. It feels very, very natural. But also as well, you know, the flirting, the, you know, getting somebody on side, you know, finding out about someone. You know, all of that stuff, for me, that foreplay... It's so incredible. Actually, when it comes down to the main meal, you suddenly realise you're quite full up because you've been snacking all the way, you know, so... Depends what kind of sex you're having, darling. It does, Maybe it wasn't as good as you, um, you know... You (laughs) you cannot take that away from me, Matt. You are not allowed to take that away from me. (laughs) That is mine. Right, on that, let's take a really quick pause. Coming up in part two... I'd just like to point out right now that absolutely not all Asians are bottoms. I know they're not, darling. Myself included. (laughs) So there we go. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. 
So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. We'll get straight back to Gok just as soon as I've reminded you that Attitude Heroes is sponsored by the Great Britain Campaign which welcomes the world to visit, do business, invest and study in the UK. You can check out their website at great.gov.uk. And our co-sponsors are Jaguar. If you'd like more information on their products, then you can visit the website jaguar.co.uk or look out for them in the latest issue of Attitude magazine. Okay, so we've talked about you being at drama school. We've talked about you discovering sex. We've talked about your exploration of the camp persona and everything. Mm. So how do we get from that boy at drama school to the Gok one that everybody knew, which was a very thought-out stage persona on screen? Oh, my God, how do we get from that stage? Um, do you know what? I've got no idea at all. I, I, I think I, I left drama school and was had decided that I was not going to be an actor. I wasn't going to be a performer. I wasn't going to be any of that kind of... Well, that... presumably in those days, there were, there were fewer roles around for... Gay there was act. none. Yeah, yeah. There was, there, was, there was nothing I could have done. I was, you know, I, I, I basically... I wasn't good enough anyway, but I couldn't have been cast for anything. There was nothing out there. But I didn't know that at the time. I just thought I was bad at what... I decided that I was going to spend the rest of my life doing. So to leave drama school was a big decision. I was there for 12 months and walked out. And it was the only thing that I'd really achieved up until then as well. So it was a huge thing for me to do. And so I left... Especially when you've got self-esteem issues. Huge self-esteem. So I left 10 Stone Lighter and I left... um, I walked out and admitted that I'd failed at this, at the one thing that I'd achieved at. And so I had this awful, awful couple of... Two years, maybe of darkness, of real darkness, where I felt worthless and terrible and I was ill and I knew that I'd, you know, all of a sudden I was living with this disease then, which was so, absolutely, anorexia, which was so overpowering. It controlled everything that I did. The language I spoke, phonetically, my vernacular, everything was based around this disease that I had. It became everything that I was. And, uh, yeah, it was it was really odd because 12 months prior to that, I decided it was going to be the one thing that was going to make me succeed. And it was the one thing that failed everything in my life. And it failed my friendships, my family, relationship with my family was very tough because they were very worried about me. And also my relationship with myself was hard because up until losing that weight, the one thing that I felt very confident about was who I was as a person. Not necessarily my skill set, but my thoughts and how much I cared about people and how I treated people and how I reacted socially was something that I was always very, very proud of. And actually the thing that I'm most proud of now as a 43-year-old. But back then, that was stripped of all of that because the anorexia had taken over and the parasite was absolutely in full effect in my body and so two years of of real darkness trying to 
rework all that out inside my brain, trying to rebuild myself and find those people that I, you know, I'd lost Dandini, he'd gone completely, I'd lost, you know, all of those people that, that made me the person. And it wasn't until I decided I was going to move back to London and I was going to give London another go that then I started to rebuild that person. And you, you know, giving it another go involved leaving the acting world and going into the fashion world, which is a lot kinder to individuals, <laughs> gay men. But it's true, well, isn't it? It's, well, it's bizarrely, but I never even knew that was going to happen. So how that happened, again, was a complete... Um, you know, mystery, because I'd come down to London, I had, by which time, met a guy and fallen in love. Again? I'd met a guy and fallen in love. In 45 seconds again? Uh, it wasn't, actually. This one, this one, this one was going to be forever. This, this wasn't. This was, this was a I love you type thing. And I don't talk about relationships. It's the one thing I don't talk about in the press is because I believe I've got to have one thing back. But needless to say, I had met someone that absolutely this is it, and we spent a long time together. Can I ask you one thing about the relationship? I'm not going to ask you any... But if you'd had all this trauma and you'd hated your body and hated mm. yourself, you say this was a loving relationship. How did it feel to have somebody say to you, I love you? It was amazing. But I'd never not had that, because even when... Because the thing is, with anorexia, it, feel, it can make you very selfish, is that, you know, my family had told me they loved me all the time. Right. You know, so actually, I never felt that I, didn't, I wasn't loved. I just didn't love myself. And it's a completely different thing. And so I'd met this guy, had fallen in love, decided I was going to move back to London, and then by chance had fallen into the fashion industry. And I'd done that through a massive, massive lie, which is I told a huge lie to get into the fashion industry. What, that you were straight? No, that I was, <laughs> I was already working in the... Basically, I, I got my agent by going in and to the agency and saying I was a makeup artist. I'd just flown in from New York. I'd been working on a film. I didn't have any kit because my portfolio was with a director in LA. I'm flying out there to go and do a film. Give me a reason to stay. <gasps> so you were basically just acting. That's uh, yeah. where the drama trend And at the came time, with. I was working as a waiter at Balance. And so I was acting. And so basically, and I don't know where I found this confidence from, but I found this bravado, this confidence, maybe part of Dandini, actually. Maybe I found a little... I hadn't really thought about it. How did, he, maybe... how did he make a reappearance, then, if you said that part of Dandini... You said he was. You said yeah. he disappeared for two years. He'd gone. He'd, how did he'd he, absolutely how did gone. He come back? But I don't know. He, he'd obviously... Uh, the more I found my confidence and the more that I started to rebuild my life from the dark place that I'd been in, I suppose more of me came back. And the more of me came back, the more familiar it was and, you know, in, in that kind of reaction. So I, I then fell into the fashion industry and I had just this incredible journey where it was fast-paced and exciting and it was brilliant and then all of a sudden all facets of my personality were in use. You know, the person that looks after somebody in a makeup chair and makes sure that they feel loved and cared about, similar to what you get on How to Look Good Naked. Dandini, who needs to perform and create an ambience in a photographic studio or on set of a film or whatever, exactly what I do on How to Look Good Naked. You know, the person that's part of my personality that's in control and can manage a situation and can be the production, exactly what I do on How to Look naked so it almost feels as if I'd spent then the next eight nine years building up to that big moment when I was 30 when I got offered the tv show so I'd kind of gone full circle almost you know when you got the tv show you know you, you must have been aware having had low moments that this was your big break this could change everything I had no idea Oh, really? I had no idea. I, I Genuinely. So I was working in the fashion industry, was, by which time I'd now become a stylist. I'd gone from hair and makeup, I'd become a stylist. I'd done very well. I worked 
all the time, but but really slogged at it and really grafted. I wasn't one of these people that work just came to you. I'd be out finding work constantly. I had a great agent. He's still my agent now, and um, was was it was great. But then. The TV opportunities started coming up. It was quite... It, on the landscape of television, they started wanting to make makeover shows and fashion shows and stuff. And it was at the time when Trini and Susanna was leaving the BBC. And they, the BBC then, were looking for someone to replace Trini and Susanna. So they, they called my agent... Carol said, well, you went to drama school, so why don't you go in? I said, there's no way, I don't want to do it, I'm not interested. I think probably now, looking back, I still had some open wounds from drama school. I might have been slightly afraid of going into a performance world. But uh, anyway, I went into this audition. I had the worst audition in the entire world because they were rude and they wanted me to be mean to the people that I was oh. doing on screen. And I refused to do it, walked away from it thinking, I don't want to work in bloody TV. They're all fucking horrible. They're horrible people. Why would you do that? And then all of a sudden, I then um, got asked to audition for a daytime makeover show for Channel 4 and did the taster tape and it went back into Channel 4 but at the time they'd just commissioned Deal or No Deal and that um, had taken all the afternoon slots so my show got canned before it even got made but then the person, Mark Downey at Channel 4 saw this tape and said there's something about him passed it straight to primetime to Sue Murphy and she then called me in and said we've got this show called Naked would you do it? and we, I said okay We'll do it. I had no idea at all what it was about, whether I could do it or whatever. We started filming, but I had no idea at all what the show was going to be. Well, it's interesting you say you'd no idea that it was going to change everything, but at the same time, to what extent when you were preparing to do the show, you know, you talked earlier about playing up certain elements of Camp Nurse and the Dandini mm. character. Did you... I always imagined you sitting down and coming up with the catchphrases, working no. out what you were going to do. So it wasn't a kind of conscious it wasn't It was so natural. We didn't even know what we were going to get on the first day of filming. We had a, a skeleton format, but we had no idea. And I remember standing in front of the mirrors for the first time, the three mirrors, the beginning of every episode of House Look Good Naked. And I remember walking into the space and the woman standing there, and I was terrified because it was me in front of those mirrors. Because everything that woman went, was going through, I was going through myself. And what none of the producers or Channel 4 or even my agent knew was that I was still heavily suffering from the anorexia. So I was still, you know, refusing to eat at times and I was still really struggling with it as well. I hadn't really gotten over it by that time. Yet I was on this TV programme that was a makeover show convincing people to feel better about themselves. Well, yeah, I mean, it's the catchphrase is it's all about the confidence. All about the confidence, which and actually wasn't even... A... That wasn't my catchphrase. That was actually created by a comic who impersonated me, oh. Kevin Bishop. So I'd never... I think I might have said it a couple of times that it wasn't my catchphrase. So, 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 but the... So I didn't... I had no idea at all what was going to happen with this programme. And I remember the show going out and we'd run over this filming schedule and we were just finishing in the last episode. So we were filming the day the show went on air. And I remember Jenny Freilich, my director saying to me um, about I don't I think the show went out at 7.30 about 7 o'clock saying your life is about to change forever and I said fuck off Jenny it's not it's you know it's fine whatever it's I'm going back to work tomorrow you know and after this job hopefully I'll get some magazine work and then what I might do is go and see a couple of old mates in the advertising world see if there's any work going on there maybe there's a band who needs styling I literally thought that was going to be the end of TV and I was just going to go back to my normal world of being a stylist and I was more than prepared for that 
But it's funny as well, actually, because obviously everybody embraced you, everybody loved you from the start. But, but they didn't. They couldn't get oh, me. Really? They didn't get me at the very beginning. And it was like, all of a sudden, there was this... And my sexuality was a big part well, of this that. Well, this is what I was going to say. You know, you were saying that you put the Chinese and the fat up front and you kept the sexuality behind. As I'd soon as you were on, it that time. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it was right up front and yeah. centre, wasn't it? Whether you, you know, and that's, that's one of the first things that people noticed, commented on. Yeah, there was this gay guy. So I remember reading in the press, there's this gay Chinese stylist telling fat women how to feel better about themselves. It was something on those lines. It was that kind of wording. And I remember thinking to myself, this is really odd because this is just who I am. And all of, the first time that someone writes about you um, is a really weird feeling because they dissect you. So all the stuff that you'd worked on for many years, working out who you are as a person, now you've got a third person discussing that for you. And so it felt very alien for me. I'd In never three really, lines as yeah, well. Yeah, exactly. Not... And so it was there. And so, but the, it was, and it was really, and the, the thing that got everyone is the fact that every, every single statement was gay, sexuality, gay, camp, gay, camp, camp, sexuality. But I was just being who I am, really. And, of course, Dandini had come out when making the programme because I needed to have that part of my personality because I had to get through different situations, which is where the term bangers come from because it's a great icebreaker and it was where the joking comes from. It's where all that kind of heightened, polarised femininity, or if you want to call it campiness, comes out because it was a way of icebreaking. It was a way of me doing my job. It was a tool. But it was the one thing that everyone noticed above and beyond everything else. It was about sexuality. But I hadn't realised then, really, you know, I was one of the only gay guys that was super out oh, and camp time. on television that's, and refused to compromise that as well. That's why you're on this podcast as a hero, <laughs> because of exactly that. But, interestingly, right, so you, so you say that, you know, a lot of the viewers responded straight away to the gayness. That's what everybody noticed. How about the gay... It wasn't the viewers, it was uh, people that wrote about Perhaps, it. Yeah. yeah. How about the gay community? Because I know other men who've played up their sense of camp who have had criticism from within our community. And a lot of people are sensitive about it. They think, you know, people are worried about stereotypes, this, yeah. that, the other. Did you have any negative reactions from gays or were you immediately embraced by the gay community? I don't remember very much criticism about my campness from the gay community. I've got gay friends that are in the media um, that have spoken very candidly, saying the only time they really get homophobia is from the gay community. I didn't really get any, any of that at all. And I don't... I, I don't, actually don't know, even know why I didn't, but they didn't come for me for that. And, or well, maybe I was just oblivious to it. Maybe I didn't notice it. Well, it's interesting because, you, yes, you were very camp and you did play up that side of things, as you said, but you were always an individual. You were never... A stereotype, you know, maybe maybe the fact that um, the fact that you looked different, that you were half Chinese, maybe that mm. just, you know, you were never going to be a straight stereotype, were you? There was too much that's quirking individual and yeah, it was weird because they because people didn't people really people really didn't go for me, but do you know I think that's partly because I, you know, making a show like How to Look Good Naked was. I put so much of me out there. Mm. I had to to make the programme. And so everything was laid bare. So you can't criticise somebody for being who they are. No. In a really weird honest. way. Absolutely. And because I... And, and so I, maybe, I, maybe I just got lucky. I don't know. But my the, the campness... My campness has never really... It's only ever been an issue, my campness, is when I, people want to hurt me. 
People think, it, think, people think it's going to be the first thing that's going to hurt me by calling me camp. And I'm talking in the gay community or, um, or being called a faggot or a queer or whatever in the street, which is what I get a lot from being very you know, openly gay on television. And I'm not saying that's an excuse for that because I hate it, but it does happen. But, the, but people do think that by turning around and saying how camp I am, it's going to hurt me. And actually it doesn't. It really flatters me because I've worked really hard at that part of me. You own your camp. Yeah, it's, absolutely. Yeah. And I'm not embarrassed about it. And, I'm, and I feel I'm really fond of it. Why do you think, you know, I was saying that this issue of attitude is going to have the theme of masculinity. Why do you think that so many gay men do have a problem with it? You've mentioned some friends of yours being mm. on the receiving end of criticism. Is it because we are, a lot of us are insecure about our masculinity because we're made to feel that we aren't real men? I think that, I think it goes much further than that. I think that we, there, there's a social tendency to tell, you know, boys will be boys. Don't worry, he's a boy. He'll just get on with it. From a very early age, the first time you're given a blue cardigan or a blue toy or a car to play with you're told you have to be a certain type of human being you've got to be someone that's going to be a hunter-gatherer someone that's going to be a boy and girls are told they have to be a certain way so we're very programmed from a very young age of what we're what's expected from us and of course we can't be those people because we aren't just programmed genetically we're not programmed that way so the minute that you've got an adult in a space and they are being battered either verbally or whatever, for, for, their, for not being masculine, you know, they're going to be less of a man. And that's only because you're gay. So everything becomes an insult. And, you know, and I think that's why people really do struggle with it. And I can kind of understand that in some way, because it is an insult to turn around and pick out any point of view and say it's a bad thing or speak about it derogatory is an insult. And so people are going to be protective over that. Because, because if somebody's camp, it doesn't stop them from being less of a man. It's just a part of their personality which is flourishing or it comes out. Well, and to have a problem with that, part of it is about misogyny, isn't it? It's about thinking that anything that's feminine is necessarily about Exactly, pain. exactly. You know, and it's things like, you know, I hear it all the time. Friends of mine say, well, yeah, I think he's going to be gay because he likes dressing up in girls' clothes. He doesn't. <laughs> he's just stimulated by those colours or those, you know, whatever. It doesn't necessarily mean he's going to be gay, you know. But the thing is, is that we, we can discuss that in our nice little media bubble in central London where we talk about creative things all the time. We can discuss that. But actually, for, you know, for a lot of people, that's going to be quite a difficult, traumatic thing because the minute you turn around and say, well, he's a bit camp, isn't he? Which is one of the worst things I hate. I hate hearing that. He's a bit camp as if to turn around and say, well... He's not much of a man, is he? Yeah, no. Or, you know, all the time, oh, he's, straight he's acting. Attractive. Oh, you know, no. And all of that stuff. You know, at the end of the day, my... You know, it's, re it's really weird. I put on um, Instagram only, only last week or the week before. I posted something up because I got really annoyed. Somebody actually said this to me. Can I read it out? Do you yeah. mind? So I put on, um, be a real man, grow some balls, man up. Uh, my sex does not give me courage. My determination, ambition and desire does, all of which are not gender exclusive. So let's make a deal. You stop asking me to be a real man and I will stop thinking you're talking nonsense. Right, so you're taking issue with what some people think constitutes a real man. Yeah. What do you think constitutes a real man? I think that I don't think there is such a thing as a real man. The moment you start putting it into a box, you know, there, 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 there are billions of men that live on this earth you know, that live their lives very differently. And depending on where, where you know, what culture they belong to, you know, all of those things. And it doesn't, you know, being a man is about your genitalia. That's where it stops. I'm a person, 
before yeah. all of that stuff. And I don't want you to tell me that I have to behave, sound, speak, eat, talk, shout You're a, a man certain if you've way. Got a dick, it's that absolutely simple. to be a man. Yeah. Because I you know, I'm all of those things. And a whole lot more. And a whole lot more. <laughs> hey, I'll tell you one thing that I find absolutely fascinating is the crossover between our views of certain races and our understanding of masculinity. So do you remember when Stephen K. Amos, who we had on this podcast, did a documentary about homophobia in the black British community? Mm. And he got random people on the street to um, check out people walking down the street. He said, who do you think's gay? Who do you think's gay? Not a single one of them mentioned a black person. Mm. And I've spoken to a lot of black friends who are gay, and um, they say that people assume they are hyper-masculine tops. Um, this association between blackness... Asians being complete yes. bottoms. So this is what I wanted to talk to you about because I've also come across that. I, you know, there's a lot of it on hookup apps and social media, yeah. but there's this kind of association between Asians and femininity and their passive, yeah. their bottoms. Yeah. You know, what the fuck? Where does that come from? Yeah. Surely the same proportion of Asians at yeah. top and bottom as any other race. Well, that, well, they, well they have to be, absolutely. You know, and the, there, is, there is real racism within the gay community, yeah. without question. There absolutely is. And, you know, I've, I've spoken very openly about this before. The amount of times that I've heard um, people turn around and say, I'm not really into Asians. You know, people have said that to me, and I'm an Asian gay man, and I obviously take complete offence to that. And I know we all have types and preferences and stuff, but you can never turn around and say, well, I'm just not into any of those. I just I find it so really... Weird, it? I find it really weird. But there is, there is a tendency also to believe that, you know, years ago when the Long Yang Club was in, in London, the, you know, a gay Asian kind of themed night, and it was, um, you know, the entire space was hypercamp, and energetic and loud and flamboyant because it kind of suited that. It didn't feel like XXL or a leather bar or any of those kind of things. It wasn't designed around that. But because we naturally, well, I suppose people thought that if you go down there, there's going to be a lot of gay Asians, it's all going to be very feminine and, and, and you know, but where like does that assume, come from, that association between femininity and gay Asians? I, I do you know what? don't get it. I've met as many mask ones as I have yeah. feminine ones. Uh, do you know what? I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it could be down... I mean, I'm asking these questions now. I don't have the answers to this. Oh, finally, it... you've got, I've got you on something <laughs> that you don't have the answer to. I'm really happy. <laughs> I know everything, Matt. I'm joking. Um, <laughs> is it to do with the fact that when we think about gay Asia, we think Bangkok ladyboy? So instantly, what the first visual that we see is a very feminine visual. Is it something to do with how Asian bodies are constructed, where they predominantly were all hairless? or a lot of us are completely hairless, so naturally that feels more feminine. Is it to do with the petite size of the average Asian? So is it something to do with that? I don't know, these are just questions. And so it could have, all of these things, I'm sure, have a influence in that. Um, but I'd just like to point out right now that absolutely not all Asians are bottoms. I know they're not, darling. Myself included. <laughs> so there we go. It's interesting that you should say that because, you know, I do think that as a gay Asian, quite often, they are having to, well, I'm imagining this as a white person, yeah. but a lot of gay Asians are having to work against these, these assumptions. Yeah. Which are yeah, based yeah. on nothing, yeah. basically. But you know what, if, just talking about the whole top-bottom thing, I find it really offensive because people automatically assume I'm a bottom. Yeah! I find it really, really offensive that people would make that, you know, I don't even fancy you and you're telling me what I prefer to do in bed. Are you actually kidding me right They're now? They're just assuming it because just of assume. prejudices and, and well, also, stereotypes. If you think about it, again, it's a moment of misogyny within the community because they assume that if you are camp or effeminate, 
that you are going to be the female person in the relationship, i.e. you're going to be the vessel, the reciprocal moment within a physical relationship. It's absolute bollocks. It's complete rubbish. So you have been on the receiving end of this kind of racism and prejudice? Absolutely, absolutely. Does it make you angry or do you think... You know, do you kind of think you can work with it and and change people's ideas? Or no, I've never made it my mission to do that. I mean, I'm I'm always very vocal with my response. I will always tell people, you know, how it is. You know, you are not allowed to make that assumption of me, or you know, you can't automatically assume that all Asians are camp, effeminate, and bottoms. You know, this this is just you know, it's 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 bad. You can't do that. I've never. I don't ever. I don't have the urge to try and change you know, everyone's opinions. I can't be bothered, to be honest with you. No. It's really weird, isn't it? Because, you know, I, I, I absolutely adore the gay community. I love being a gay man. I love the scene. I love, you know, I read gay magazines. I go to gay bars. Gay magazines gay in the plural? There's only one, <laughs> darling. <laughs> it's true. I work for the gay charities, you know. I, I, I spend a lot of my time with the gay community. And it's... We often think that we are perfect but there's so much work to be done within the community to stop this kind of behaviour. You know, whether that's, you know, a, a, a lesbian being accepting of the trans community or a gay man being accepting of the lesbian community, or whether, you know, we're, we're trying to dispel all the myths of, you know, Asians being feminine bottoms, or what is the term straight acting, and are we allowed to use that? Is that, a, you know, all of that stuff we've got to... All of this stuff needs talking about, and, you know, to make our community far better and far safer and far more accepting and a safe a place to be in for a lot of people. And that, to me, is where your heroism lies. Not only by talking about those things, but you say we think we're perfect. You have always owned your imperfections, your vulnerabilities. You know, you've put them out front as part of your persona. That's been why people have been able to emotionally connect with you, empathise with you. The gayness is part of that. Yeah. And, um, you know, and you have never been afraid of talking about these things. So for that... Thank you very much for your heroism. Thank you. (laughs) Gok Wan's lovely laughter there, wrapping up this month's episode of Attitude Heroes. His house, by the way, is gorgeous. I was slightly disappointed he didn't ask me to move in. Anyway, I'll be back again next month with another in-depth, no-holds-barred conversation with one of the UK's most prominent gay men. But who will it be? Make sure you're subscribed to this podcast to find out. Attitude Heroes is sponsored by the Great Britain campaign, which welcomes the world to visit, do business, invest and study in the UK. Check out their website at great.gov.uk. And our co-sponsors are Jaguar. If you'd like more information on their products, then you can visit the website jaguar.co.uk or look out for them in the latest issue of Attitude magazine. Until next time... Thanks for listening.